on this episode of Imagine a World. In this story, something we've already seen some evidence by, um, climate change may be compromising or risking certain island nations in the Pacific where they now lose connection to their land and who want to maintain a sense of community but don't have a land to assign that community to now start um, seeing if they can yeah, use, use the, the digital nation as a represented and recognized member of, of the global arena. Welcome to Imagine a World, a mini-series from the Future of Life Institute. This podcast is based on a contest we ran to gather ideas from around the world about what a more positive future might look like in 2045. We hope the diverse ideas you're about to hear will spark discussions and maybe even collaborations. But you should know that the ideas in this podcast are not to be taken as FLI endorsed positions. And now, over to our host, Guillaume Reason. Welcome to Imagine a World. I'm your host, Guillaume Reason. In this episode, we'll be exploring a world called Digital Nations, which was one of the third place winners of FLI's world building contest. As the name suggests, this world does a deep dive into virtual communities. It explores how people might find belonging and representation on the global stage through digital nations that aren't tied to any physical location. This world also features a fascinating and imaginative kind of artificial intelligence that they call digital persons. These are inspired by biological brains and have a rich internal psychology. Rather than being trained on data, they're considered to be raised in digital nurseries. They have a nuanced but mostly loving relationship with humanity, with some even going on to found their own digital nations for us to join. The promise of this world to me is that new technologies might provide new opportunities to bring people together. The challenges of safely navigating new kinds of intelligence may offer a chance to know ourselves and each other more deeply leading to wiser and gentler societies. This world was created by a team of three from Nairobi, Kenya. Our guests today are Tracy Shundu and Conrad Whitaker. Tracy is a science educator with a background in chemistry. She's the co-founder and CEO of Funky Science, which creates affordable at-home science kits for kids. Conrad is a startup advisor and entrepreneur who works with startups in the clean tech, talent management, and fintech sectors. Their third teammate, Dexter Findlay, is an author, filmmaker, and photographer who works in the humanitarian sector. Well, hey, Conrad and Tracy, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Hi, how are you? Quite well, thanks. Um, how did the three of you come to work together on this? There's you two and Dexter Findlay is your third teammate who's not here with us today. Yeah, that's right. I don't know how it really started, but I uh, had prior, uh, previously read some of Max Techmark's books, who heads FLI, and then through that found out about this competition. Um, and so then I reached out to a comrade in arms, Dexter, who's been a good friend of mine since the first day I arrived in Kenya back in 2014. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of shared interests. And so we very much vibed on this, um, on this topic. Uh, we spent a lot of time building this world, but we felt something was clearly missing. Uh, so we went out to, to Tracy here uh, to join us, to provide some extra perspective and some of her acting skills. Maybe I'll let Tracy you know, introduce herself. Uh, so when Conrad first approached me to, to um, help them out with this project, um, of course, Conrad being not just um, a, a regular friend, but a friend of the entire family, 
um we he he reached out and asked would you mind doing some of these things and helping us out and i felt it was wonderful experience to learn something different and something new and also to challenge myself yeah can you each say a little bit about your backgrounds and kind of what brought you to where you are today uh, yeah in a professional capacity i've been in in in, Ken, in well i guess africa for 9 out of 10 years mm-hmm. now um uh, primarily working in the startup ecosystem uh, working uh, with 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 young uh, companies and helping them scale, and I've always had this uh, kind of intellectual or curious uh, um, attachment to to I guess the future and and to various philosophical topics, um, and that's how I found myself in this uh, reading some of these books that that connected to this competition. Um, just to introduce Dexter as well, yeah. Um, Dexter uh, is uh, truly a, a renaissance man and uh, a very good friend, but he's, he's very multifaceted. So he's a, he's a movie maker. He's a self-published author, widely read, uh, an archaeologist, uh, an astronomer. And I think, yeah, he has a very colorful background and um, he's a good friend to both Tracy and, and the family and, and, and me and my family. Um, and he's just moved back to the UK with, with his family. Mm. Um, leaving us us here in, in Kenya, um, but that's that's kind of the a bit of the context. Uh, and for me, my background is around uh, science, so um, I love chemistry particularly. So um, a lot of my work and a lot of my learning has been industrial chemistry, environmental chemistry, building around that. But um, from all that work around science, I sort of also wanted to speak to a science community within Kenya. And that's what prompted us now uh, with my co-founder back in university to sort of create a system and a space where uh, people could speak about science. But we found out that we don't have a lot of adults people listening to science talk. So mm. we decided, you know, why not go a bit lower and sort of influence younger minds because they haven't formed an opinion that science is difficult and science is hard. So that's <laughs> what brings me to now uh, our company, which we created was called uh, Funky Science. So sort of making science fun for children and making it more relatable to them so that uh, they don't have this notion that science is hard or difficult, but also manageable. I'm curious to hear some some of the things that you both learned as part of working on this contest and going through the, the process of world building for it. It's hard. <laughs> and, 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 and I think the, the way the, the structure was created where you had to have a timeline, um, that, that I think was kind of completed at the very end, literally the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to make a world that's consistent every year and plausible and aspirational uh, was it was was tricky, and certainly we wanted to provide the kind of outside perspective, perhaps a bit more non-Western centric perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the project was looking at various data points um, that might not be top of mind to other audiences, and you know, note those changes. So these would be the undercurrent events mm-hmm. that were just as fundamental and impactful and important. But it was, of course, because they're undercurrent, harder to, to think about. Um, so mm-hmm. really spending the time to, to force oneself to think about it was, was a bit of teeth pulling, uh, I think, that all of us experienced. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, it's, it's something that I think we feel quite happy with. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we look back on this project with some fondness and some pleasure. Um, some of the details we have forgotten. And so it was a pleasure kind of rereading our world uh, in preparation mm-hmm. for, this, for this podcast. 
and definitely for me it's learning also something new that I didn't um, know of or understand uh, or even wanted to put the energy into understanding. But working with Conrad and Dexter sort of also um, brought to light different things that I didn't understand and also sort of aligned some of the assumptions I had. You know, um, when you don't want to immerse yourself into something new, then you just assume it is something difficult and I do not want mm. to think about it. But working with Conrad and Dexter also actually forced me to, you know, leave that comfort zone of I will live with this assumption and just move on with my life. And which is um, <laughs> not how, which is not a very intentional way of living and which is also yeah. how majority of people live, but sort of also force you to read more, learn more you know, um, question more, not just stay with whatever knowledge that you have at the moment, but also expand and learn more about um, different concepts, different ideas, and also broadened also my view on um, some of the subject matter that we were discussing, which was, well, it was, it was heavy, but it was something new, and I enjoyed that part of learning it. That's so cool. The first digital nation in this world is Tonga, a Polynesian kingdom whose digital statehood is recognized by the UN after the majority of its people are forced to flee rising seas. This opens the door to other digital collectives, also seeking global recognition. The story of Tonga turned out to be incredibly prescient. Less than a year after our winners were announced, the nearby island nation of Tuvalu revealed plans to become the world's first digital nation. The first part of its land that will be lost to rising seas has already been digitally preserved. This is a bittersweet validation for the world that Tracy, Conrad, and Dexter have imagined. I wanted to hear more about how the digital nations they conceived of impacted the lives of the people in their world. So I'd like to spend a little while talking about what this world that you've imagined looks like in the future. What is it like to live in your world? Like, how do people find fulfillment around 2045 or so? In some ways, the human condition is probably no different in 2045 as it is today. Um, you know, there's still these ego problems that we might face that people still have problems. This isn't a utopia. I, I think that's something that would never really happen. Uh, and so I think, uh, I think there's some problems we, we can't really predict that people in this world are engaging with, but in part through the effects of technology and, and those types of innovations, um, the ability to find and maintain relationships continues to improve. And I think this mm. is just something that might not be too surprising or, or, or too out of the box. We already have begun bridging people's communication channels. Uh, right now, you're, you're in California, we're in Kenya. I don't think we'll ever replace that fully in a metaverse, um, complete artificial reality type way with avatars. There's always going to be an umbrella over physical reality, and we still need that, that physicality. Uh, but, but in terms of connecting with people and overcoming those barriers, lubricating that through technology, I think um, allows us to, to maintain various communities more easily than we might today. Mm -hmm. um, when the pandemic hit, uh, I was in my apartment for, for many days, for many months, and I felt like I could be like someone in Buenos Aires. I could be like someone you know, in Ontario. Um, the apartment itself is pretty standard, and yet... In 2045, I'd hope and expect that we can bridge some of those gaps to those people more directly mm -hmm. than we did. Than and, and, um, and from my understanding, technology sort of makes the world limitless. So uh, you can sort of have more, I'd say interactions, but more knowledge and understanding 
from one point to another. If if I was to allude to Conrad's point of Corona and how during the lockdown there was a lot of limited, you know, movement and limited association, but you know, sort of using technology to bridge that gap, uh, sort of brings a sort of I'd, I'd call it community in quotes, but um, still removes the whole aspect of I guess a bit of loneliness from everything. I think it's nice to imagine like technology bringing us all together and and providing this new scaffolding for social interactions. And that's kind of one central thing in your world is these digital nations. So I'm curious to hear a little more about how you imagine that working. Like how many digital nations are there and how many would the average person be a member of? In terms of a digital nation right now, what do we have? What? 193, you know, nations, you know, give or take those secessionist movements we might not want to count or not. Um, uh, globally today, um, I'm not sure there's going to be as defined number in 2045. Uh, perhaps we could say there's about the same number of digital nations. I think the reason is is that it's it's a bit more of a spectrum. So uh, right now you might have Facebook community groups or you know some other types of collectives today. You might be in clubs and they have their website. You might be part of the Rotary Club. Mm-hmm. And what happens is. Just like how companies, uh, let's say, you know, Facebook or Google will have extreme amounts of power um, where their causal power among their societies might be more than the local municipal governments. In a similar way, some of these clubs that are now being more and more organized by uh, enabled by by technology um, start to attain more power. Uh, causal power of of organization um, and so forth. And then what happens is in this story, something we've already seen some evidence by, um, climate change may be compromising or risking certain island nations in the Pacific where they now lose connection to their land and who want to maintain a sense of community but don't have a land to assign that community to now start um, seeing if they can yeah, use, use the, the digital nation as a, as a, as a, as a, as a represented and recognized um, member of, of the global arena. Um, and so I think that, that doesn't seem too far-fetched. Um, so you get like an old traditional way of seeing a community. And because of a loss of land, uh, the international arena says, you know what, we have to do right by this. And so let's recognize, let's say, we we had put Tonga, but it might be Tuvalu, it seems, um, to recognize. Um, and these ones, this community will have the power of issuing passports, having their own currency, but will not necessarily be constrained by land. And in, in that way, we feel more and more, uh, we see potentially that more and more communities will want that same kind of freedom, that kind of independence from the land to which they were born and, and be able to, yeah, to move between citizenships and have different types of sovereignties. So at that point in 2045, I think 200 might be too many uh, digital nations that are kind of causally powerful. Um, I think instead of seeing it as an either or, they're more just various types of clubs that have power where people come, either register, they apply to, they get there, and then they can leave um, because they're not constrained so much by the the resources that, say, a given nation state today has. So it's easier to come and go and to share in more of them. So you can be kind of a, a, a citizen of more than one digital nation. Hmm. One thing I don't want to let slide without commenting on is Tuvalu and how I think this is after your submission, right? They they have become the world's first digital nation or are aiming to. They're, they're scanning all of their land 
and getting a, a digital representation of it and ensuring that all the people who live there have a connection to that land before it's threatened by climate change. Had you had you heard of that in, in the works before you submitted your world? We had not. Actually, we learned about this from you. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I thought that was pretty neat. I think neat is an understatement. I mean, yeah, I was watching this video. They have a website, Tuvalu.tv. And you can see that, you know, there's like this, this man giving an address at a podium and it slowly zooms out and you realize he's on a beach. And then there's these little subtle graphical artifacts. It's really well done. And you start to realize the whole thing is a digital representation of the landscape, you know, and he's like, there's water rising around him. <laughs> it's very dramatic, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really strikingly on point given what you imagined. And it's also unfortunately pretty heartbreaking <laughs> yeah, since yeah. we don't want that to yeah. happen, right? We, we want Absolutely. a different origin story for, for digital nations, but I guess, um, if, I, if I'm thinking about it, it's, it's, it, it was not what the, the vision at the time, but it's, it's sad that it's happened quite fast, but also slowly becoming a reality that we should also start looking into that. It's also happening that fast. So yeah, uh, it's, it's a two sided sort of scenario. And, well, it's 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 also sad losing your land, something that you've been used to, that you're familiar with, and then now the other side is also now adopting something new. This world takes major challenges like climate change and inequality very seriously. While great progress is eventually made in addressing them, that progress is initially slow and uneven. The world's timeline is of course constrained to end in 2045, but it's clear that this team doesn't believe in quick fixes. Inequality in particular doesn't really see much improvement until digital persons begin to suggest new approaches to solving it. I was curious to explore Tracy and Conrad's perspectives on dealing with climate change and on the roles of digital persons in shaping their world. So I'd like to take a while to talk about some of the challenges that your world faced uh, along the way to its end point. So one massive feature, obviously, is climate change, as that's kind of why you have these digital nations start to emerge. You have Tonga being threatened by sea level rise. Suddenly, the majority of Tongans find themselves living outside of the country. And so they have to make this move to become a, a digital nation that the UN recognizes. Your world fights back pretty hard against climate change. You have a lot of alternative fuel sources. You cut down at factory farms. I think you even have like reflective materials you inject into clouds to try to, you know, amp up the greenhouse gas reflection kind of stuff. A lot of these solutions can really only be put into place immediately by highly resourced countries. So one thing I'm curious about is whether your perspective being from within Africa affects the way you think about climate change and how to address it. I mean, I think there's, there's more and more kind of awareness of this need to plan for mm. adaptation in Africa. Um, I think I live in the best city in the world, uh, Nairobi. Um, and, and that's partly because of its wonderful climate. It's very temperate. It never gets above 85, really, maybe at 90 occasionally, and then never below 60. And it's winter, mm. quote unquote. And so it's a bit kind of easy to ignore, unfortunately, mm -hmm. um, um, the effects of climate change. We do have some less predictability when it comes to rain, mm. but just... You drive eight hours north. Uh, we have had what four or five years of extreme drought. drought, and and so I think, I think there is already some kind of humanitarian reactions and 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 quote unquote demand yeah. to to address these problems. Um, it certainly won't be enough. It's certainly a problem, but I think I just have to say that uh, I the theme that I want to continually come back to is that problems are solvable, and, and yeah. I, you know there's a 
it's a real problem. It's not something to, to, to put away and, and ignore. Um, but because it's solvable, it's something to address and, and take seriously and then, and then, but still be hopeful that, that we can adapt. Because um, um, just to add in, I feel policy-wise, um, some of the things were, were very slow in terms of implementing anything around uh, climate change. I think, I think when the notion was very relaxed, like um, some of these effects, we don't see them, we don't feel them. So why should we try and change anything? Hmm. But as, as Conrad has mentioned, for the past four years, I'd say even areas around the central highlands of Kenya have been quite dry. Um, and then you'll find certain areas where these um, changes in even uh, quantities of water in the lake and, and um, rainfall and lakes merging. So I think there's a scenario where two lakes in the Great Rift are, are sort of merging. Uh, that's Lake Baringo and Lake Bogoria. And that would actually if, have effects on the ecosystem. And, you know, a lot of people are now speaking about some of these changes that are happening. And we have lots of now, especially speaking about it, geologists, environmental scientists, actually uh, trying to highlight some of these changes within the country so that also people are aware, so that it doesn't seem like, oh, it's extreme temperatures in ABC sort of country in the north, yeah. and it's not happening here, but... Um, there are actually certain changes that have been happening. So even the discussion around the lakes on the Great Rift, I tell you that's, some, that's, that's a conversation that happened maybe about four years ago. And now it's coming to the forefront and people are now speaking about it, uh, speaking about the changes in also, of course, rainfall, because even um, for many African countries and Kenya not being left out, we rely a lot on rainfall for our agriculture. So that means now we can provide food to feed our populations because of those changes in the weather patterns and temperature, even seasons. I think part of it, a travesty here also is that the vast majority of the power generated in Kenya is mm. from renewable hydro. sources, yeah. uh, mm. hydro and, and geothermal, geothermal yeah. being, you know, we have the Great Rift Valley, so we have plenty of source here. So we're really not the contributors to this problem here. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a... a yeah, a sad note there. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, your your world has different methods of trying to deal with these changes that do impact, you know, the ability to farm and things like that. You have advanced agriculture that develops and decentralized manufacturing, um, free trade and open borders to some parts of Africa. And, you know, you portray this building wealth in a lot of African countries, but you also point out this doesn't keep pace with like rapid population growth in these areas and it doesn't immediately move everyone towards increased equality. So I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about what life in those countries would look like during this period of kind of growth to meet this challenge. Yeah, I think there's a few points maybe worth highlighting. Um, first off, population growth continues, but I think the overall rate by 2045 starts to slow down. The absolute value of, of, of wealth, quote unquote, goes up, even if it doesn't particularly mitigate inequality. But I do think in our story, we do say that like Congo, I don't know when, it's like 2038 is now declared extreme poverty free. Um, and, and that in part is generated by a lot of things like liberalization of economies, improved trade, um, improved governance. But in terms of a lot of the problems that we see today, at, you know, we'll, we'll get rid of malaria by then. Um, and a lot of these other tropical diseases for the, for the very worst off, um, that's going to happen in the next few decades. So it, it, yeah, it's not going to bring things to parity. Um, there's still going to be, uh, there's going to be a, a, an increase in, in, in wealth, but I still think there's going to be some distribution of that wealth in a way that still uh, helps the, the worst off in society. 
more a more equitable distribution of the wealth to different sort of African countries or nations. I, I agree with making also the trade in Africa borderless because it's um, the reality is there are barriers left right and center, but in the creation of the world and making it. Uh, it was 2038, yes, <laughs> in making um, the open borders because that's that's a conversation that has been going on severally. So it's it, it creating um, a sort of uh, idea around that uh, borderless travel, borderless trade is, is essential also to Africa's growth because um, with borderless travel and borderless trade comes also exchange of ideas. And mm-hmm. that still sort of creates an improvement in everything that happens on the continent. Yeah. And that fits in very well with this theme of kind of weakening the power of, you know, physical nations and the limits they have on people's movements and behaviors. One one way that you address this growing inequality in your world is eventually we have these digital persons, which we'll get into exactly what those are in a moment. But basically they start to advance our moral knowledge as well as our other areas of knowledge, like technical, scientific, whatnot. And they start to encourage us to really put effort into making the world more equitable. I'm just curious what you imagine it could look like to advance moral knowledge. Like, could you imagine an example of how this kind of influence from a digital person could play out? I'm definitely, um, I think, offending many philosophers when I'm saying these things. And this is probably (laughs) not as legitimate as it sounds. But but I think maybe the solution that these digital persons bring forth are sometimes a a kind of third way between a conflict when you say which how do we address you know the trolley problem here and and in a way that's actually more pleasing than either of the two existing mm-hmm. explanations um so that's kind of maybe an example of what would be nice to see uh in terms of moral advancement um yeah and i don't think we we have some of those answers now but i think that would be like an example of of how moral discourse could be advanced maybe it could be something that the human human could aspire to do or to be like and probably yeah and part and part of it is also how do you encourage maybe more moral behavior uh, among certain types of people um so it's not just the what is moral but also the distribution of that idea yeah interesting well let's get into what these digital persons are so Talking about advanced AI systems is getting increasingly difficult because they're developing so quickly and our concepts of what they're capable of are constantly being challenged. In your world, AI systems like we know them today, like ChatGPT and Dolly, turn out to be fundamentally pretty limited. So it takes a whole different technological approach to computation to really produce a a truly kind of intelligent system that starts to resemble us. Um, so while systems like ChatGPT, Dolly, in the future, whatever comes of them might become generally capable, something we might call an AGI, which can do almost any task as well as a human, they're still not kind of truly human-like in this deeper way. And in order to reach what you're calling digital persons, which have this kind of vivid internal experience and human-like nature, you have to build off of what you're calling non-von Neumann architectures. So um, can you say a little bit about what that looks like and why you think that could be true? Yeah, that's a, it's a complex and interesting question. And I think, like you're saying, uh, semantics and definitions, I think, probably matter. To me, the difference between what we have with the Dollies and the ChatGPTs today is that, yeah, fundamentally, they can extract the most interesting combinatoric you know, outputs that you have based on its training modules. And you can have these interesting new arts uh, and pictures that are generated by this. But ultimately, it's constrained. So the, the test I would give is like, okay, 
give an existing AI all the knowledge you had until 1905, mm. <laughs> written thing, and can it come up with general relativity? Can it conjecture? Can it dream things that hasn't been, that doesn't come from a statistical or stochastic output of its training uh, module? And I don't know what that is. I don't know what the creativity module is in humans that that does this. Mm. But the von Neumann reference there is something I certainly wouldn't want to put a bet on. But yeah. um, uh, I think we just had to find some sort of trope that some sort of invention or discovery would come out. Yeah. Well, so speaking of these digital persons and what their experience is like, I really enjoyed how your world shifted language from AI training to kind of AI upbringing. And you really leaned into these internal psychological lives of these digital persons. They need to be kind of raised in a careful and specific way in these digital nurseries. You say that we've tried different ways of upbringing them. And if you have a highly controlling environment, it actually creates stunted or even kind of suicidal digital persons. I was curious why you think that this kind of liberal upbringing would be the most effective for raising a digital person. Oh, off the bat, it's just more positive. But uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I, th I think I'm afraid of these kind of totalitarian tropes about the future where there's a lot of surveillance. Uh, these are the types of, of, of narratives that I think are already kind of shared. And, and the idea here is that no, we're just error correcting at a higher, more sophisticated level. And the best way to error correct our own thoughts, our preconceived notions, is, is to have a kind of an open discourse um, to be able to do that. And that's how we advance our own knowledge, uh, when we can lean into our disagreements. The moment things are more suppressed, the moment things are more controlled, uh, even as, as us school children, we then might want to disobey, we might want to rebel, and that becomes more dangerous. So the, the kind of bet we take in this world is that no you you let these agents be themselves um, and you put them in environments that allow them to have discourse with other agents whether it's other digital persons or it's humans themselves and they'll make mistakes they'll learn from those mistakes and because they have this freedom to pursue to create to discover to invent new knowledge to discover new knowledge they, they now find some sort of contentment and can build relationships in this kind of social milieu. Yeah. So as you're talking about this, it's always that there's kind of an analogy, which makes sense since these are based on human-like brain systems. There's an analogy between what is good for these systems and the way that they're brought up and what you believe is good for human children and human people <laughs> when they're brought up. It's a really interesting angle there where like, raising these digital people could give us a quantitative test bed to figure out what the truly best way to raise a human-like entity would be. And I'm curious how you could see that, you know, interacting with the way that we actually raise our human children. And specifically, I'm curious of how, like, you know, education or the way we interact with kids might change based on what we learn from these digital persons. Honestly, it's when you cultivate a sort of space of freedom where it's safe for you to express yourself, to speak out your opinions, then you get a more open sort of society where people are even able to come up with ideas and uh, come up with solutions to problems much faster than when you create a scenario where it is um, strict, closed, and my way or the highway. So it sort of breeds resentment towards, uh, let's say, the big guy or the boss or the one who runs the show and sort of brings this notion that if um, if I am wrong, then there's something wrong with me. 
But mm-hmm. if um, if I want to express myself and I want to express a different opinion from yours, it is not that I am fighting you, but it's that we can have different opinions, we can have different thoughts, and we can still coexist. Yeah. I have kind of a darker twist on that question, which is, what if you imagine that raising these digital people in a really strict, controlling, kind of oppressive environment was best for them, and they came out as more you know, effective tools or entities in the world? Would that make you reconsider how we should be, you know, raising our children or running our societies as humans? Well, I like to say that I'm open to it being corrected, um, kind of on principle, and that if a better explanation presents itself, it doesn't make sense for me to reject it out of some sort of egotistical uh, uh, attachment to a prior explanation. Um, I think it's just hard for me to believe that scenario. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yes. um, and... And yeah, so I think, uh, but it, it would be something for me to to look into and mm-hmm. to try to understand where I'm wrong, uh, where we're wrong, and 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 why that that is the case. Um, I think I'm fearing a little bit that it's it's like these these fairy tales where they say, um, you know, you, choice is what makes you unhappy. Let me just remove your choice, and so in, yeah, <laughs> you, you know, where you don't have to think. Um, now we have this brave new world kind of environment, um, so that all problems are gone. Yeah, maybe they're happy in some way, uh, but maybe not the environment or the, the world that I'd like to live in. Um, and then I would assume that if they had the full kind of awareness that they would probably argue, or many of them not to be in that environment either. Yeah. I want to go back to your video piece where Tracy plays that digital person, Mama Akili, and she's kind of trying to recruit people for her digital nation. I'm curious why digital persons would want people to join their nations. And I'm also curious what you imagine they'd be like as leaders. Like, would they have any particular strengths or shortcomings? My thoughts when I was doing this was I'm welcoming people to join my community, to join us, to grow differently, to see a different perspective of the future, to be part of a place that has limitless possibilities and limitless things that you could do. I think I think these... Uh Digital persons are nurtured by by humans, and uh, a theme sometimes that we represent in this story is that they're kind of our children. And so there's a bit of this kind of upward respect to to those that kind of birthed them, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and and so in, in part also with their development of moral knowledge, there's this kind of desire for them to be able to involve other moral beings mm-hmm. uh, in in a kind of communal way. Uh, what's really interesting in that Mama Akili video is that it's about persuasion. It's not about coercion. It's about, mm-hmm. this is the argument that I'm presenting. I believe with the agency that I have, that this is, uh, I think, a good thing. Um, I'll let you decide whether or not to join uh, because you have your own agency as well. Yeah, I like I like Tracy's portrayal of it as kind of like this this passion the digital person is kind of an ideologue that has come to this moral view and and it just wants to, you know, bring other people along with it if they want to join. This team's exploration of digital nations was very timely, and not only because of Tuvalu's announcement. Shortly after FLI's contest ended, American investor Balaji Srinivasan also published a book called The Network State. In this book, he outlines how a unified digital community might go about gaining credibility as a state on the global stage. I was curious how this team had arrived at the concept of digital nations right as these conversations were beginning. 
I also wanted to hear how they felt their portrayal of digital persons related to conversations already ongoing around the future and impact of today's AI systems. So I'd like to take a while now to talk about different ways that some of the ideas in your world are currently being thought about and portrayed in popular media and how that compares to what you've come up with. So the first obvious one is the concept of a digital nation, which I hadn't heard about before reading your world. Um, you mentioned that there has been this uh, portrayal of network states by Balaji, but you read that afterwards. I'm curious, what was your original inspiration for digital nations? Like what went into that concept? Yeah, digital nations to us was kind of a, a natural organic outcrop. And ultimately how we organize are probably you know, around the social constructs that we accept. Um, if you're in a gang, um, maybe that gang provides some sort of governmental services. They have the monopoly on violence. If you're in a more sophisticated uh, nation state, they have that monopoly. Um, and then they provide, you know, the firefighting services and so forth. Um, and yet you might be in a country and you might feel limited. And what we do now with civil societies, we organize and we organize. And my mother, as an example, you know, connected very much on Facebook um, over the past couple of years. Uh, with others, and I'm sure this isn't a story that's unique to me. And then you know that she she dove into politics uh, from 2016 onwards, um, and 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 you know that that's provided a sense of community. And so the point for us was not to stop there. What is the next thing? What are the next instruments of power? What do these collective groups? How can they change things causally? Um, and what would be the epitome of the most powerful type of organization. You know, one might say it's a company, the other might say it's a country. So we would just expect that more and more of these digitally organized communities start sharing their own maybe coins, uh, digital coins that can only be used and transacted with other members of that community. Um, you know, you, now you get some representation or acknowledgement uh, from other parties. And so now you're seen as legitimate in some way. And this is how mm -hmm. the nation state uh, community accepts those from digital Sorry, from, from islands that are submerging uh, in this story. Um, and so, yeah, it was just this natural progression that, that led to this idea of digital nations. And then we didn't continue. And I think Balaji continued. Yeah. I'm curious to hear from Tracy about perceptions of Dolly and GPT. I mean, it sounds like this the digital nations concept, I mean, it's kind of just starting to become something anybody is thinking about. And so it's sort of in its infancy, and it makes sense that people might be a little more dismissive of its potential impact and value. But we're really starting to see this shift where I've seen a lot more respect and interest in, in systems like Dolly and ChatGPT. And I'm curious particularly about how younger people are seeing these systems. Like, have you have you heard any discussion among your students or, or kids that you are working with? Um, it's interesting that you'd ask that because uh, from what I've seen maybe locally, it's, it's um, I wouldn't say it's younger students talking about it. It's more of uh, conversations happening around universities and also uh, how students are interacting with some of these tools to do um, tasks that they've been given or assignments. Uh, yeah. I've had this, especially around in universities, a lot. Um, high school and maybe elementary students or primary here have not had that conversation, but in university, it's more of round uh, now writing. 
So what, what essays are being done using some of these tools, even sort of setting an exam and then getting the AI to mark the exam for you, you know? So, you know, we sort of even tried some of these things of asking and setting and, you know, pushing the limits of how, what it can create for us. I had never thought about that angle of the educators and the parents using these tools themselves in their teaching. I love that flip. That's really funny. I can now imagine like a whole classroom where the students are submitting AI written articles and the teacher is judging them with AI. <laughs> imagine AI as a teacher. Imagine. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Well, as someone who who spends a lot of time thinking about how to encourage young people to engage with science, do you have any thoughts about how we might be able to use these systems to to help us do that? Like how can we actually engage people and the types of people who aren't necessarily engaged with certain topics? like in STEM, for example, using these tools? So as, as I mentioned, uh, the danger of some of these tools is, of course, not encouraging thinking, but you could also still use them to push different thought processes. So prompt and ask as often as you can. So it would be around creating programs that create, um, that push for creative thinking that push for working together. So one thing that we have seen with some of the things that we do, especially around a, the programs that we're creating now, is also encouraging that sort of think outside what you're doing. Question everything and don't just leave it at where it is. So um, as much as these tools give us an easier and simpler answer, question the answer at the end of the day and make make sure that is this the best answer that I've gotten out of this or is this the best outcome that I've gotten out of this system? Um, Because the fear continues being that if we continue delegating our thinking to, um, to some of these tools, then at the end of the day, are we breeding more? So the audio cut out a little bit there, but to clarify, Tracy said creating more zombies. It's, it's, it's really triggered a lot of um, questions with um, me and my co-founder. Um, and we're really sort of sitting down and thinking deeper and being a bit more critical and a bit more doing things with a lot more purpose and intention. So that at the end of the day, we're not just telling you, okay, we created this and we can do this. What do you think? But more of um, moving together with some of our participants in our programs. So um, asking questions uh, to some of the girls who do the program. Are you comfortable when you do this? Are you feeling out of place when you do this? Uh, What happens? What feelings do you get when you're doing this? Uh, Do you feel that by using this tool, your work has been simplified? You know, Mm -hmm. probing further so that we don't just leave everything up in the air. And I think um, by that, uh, I'm getting that, you know, it will also create a comfortable space where there's more expression, uh, there's more uh, communication, there's more collaboration. And we could also just incorporate both tools. So practical learning and then just using any of these AI tools to just help nurture education and nurture growth. Yeah. I also, I really like that point that you made about how it could encourage you to continue questioning and to check the answer that you get more because that made me suddenly realize, I mean, this is not a new problem. We've had textbooks, which have just been like really worse versions of these tools that also have their own errors in them, you know, and misrepresentations. And no one has really thought very much about teaching students to question textbooks, (laughs) but maybe they should. And maybe this will just be a forcing mechanism that'll encourage us to really teach these deeper knowledge findings and learning skills that'll be necessary to ensure the quality of the information they're getting um, later in life. I, I, I agree with you. Yes, that's true. 
One other thing that I really enjoyed in your world is this whole kind of psychological experience of digital persons. So again, these these digital persons are like somewhat sci-fi fantasy. They're they're not necessarily just an extension of ChatGPT kind of thing. They're there's some imagined future entity that is somewhat like us but is digital. And I found exploring what that could be like for them just really fascinating. Like one thing you mentioned is that they don't necessarily want to upgrade themselves super quickly and become scary, you know, as some people imagine an advanced AI system might, because it can impact their sense of self. So suddenly becoming a different computational system would be kind of a shock to them, and maybe they would be slower to modify themselves than you'd expect. You also mentioned that the speed at which they experience things has some kind of unchangeable limit to it. So if they start processing information really, really fast, then they actually get some form of anxiety where they don't like this experience. And so these are kind of psychological limits on the development of AI that I found really interesting. Where did these kinds of ideas come from? (laughs) Great question. I think you had to find a solution that uh, kind of mitigated the risk of um, this runaway uh, computation explosion, which would now create something that's vastly different than a digital person. And somehow this is kind of nascent belief, I think, in our world that these digital persons need to be sentient. And so there's something like what it's like to be a digital person. Um, and just the way it might be very painful for us to really just have to be cognitively thinking deeply on some problem after a while we want to take a break yeah or if you know we take some sort of uh, hallucinogenic or so, some some mind altering substance that really accelerates things and we now get a panic attack or we get anxiety uh, because maybe our senses are extremely heightened the analogy was just brought over into the psychology of a digital person where we say okay now we're just going to accelerate your compute or you're going to have to just compute more then to me, if digital persons aren't analogous to people, they'd also have and, and gravitate, gravitate towards a comfort zone where the amount that they have to learn every day um, can become uncomfortable if it's too much. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the range of experiences they could have too. I like the idea of kind of a, a data consuming digital person, or maybe there's like a slacker digital person who only does like a million computations a second or whatever it is, (laughs) because they like to relax and listen to jazz at 10x speed between every thought. (laughs) Yeah. Are there any examples of like psychologically rich portrayals of AI systems in fiction that inspired you to kind of think about these inner lives this way? I'm not a very... um and this is a Dexter Findlay uh, question. <laughs> okay, he's, he's the science fiction uh, guru, and he's the one who's recommended to to us books like those by Ian M. Banks, which I've started reading and have enjoyed. Yeah, and and, and quite a number of others. Um, really would would go to him. I think uh, where I would say um, is that the portrayals really in science fiction are those of digital people as people. So the minds that you have in the culture series. Uh, are have their personalities. They make mistakes. They they have espionage. They rebel, um, and yet these are you know the the minds that are just way above everyone else. Um, and and yeah, this comes back to this element of uh, what does it look like to be a digital person? Tracy, do you have any touch points like in, in books or movies or other media that have affected the way you thought about AI? I'd, I'd lean more with uh, also what uh, Conrad had said and think round <laughs> primarily um, what I've seen in 
sci-fi so star wars mainly uh, has influenced a lot of what i thought around it so um i i before i met them i didn't really think much about it but mm-hmm. i mentioned when i was younger i'd watch like a lot of the star wars star trek ca- cartoons and sort of look at it and be like hmm, this could be something but when uh we started also some of this the stuff that are in this project then um i think also conrad mentioned the so dexter does a b c d would you be interested in seeing some of these things and i'm like oh wow so this this is this is quite interesting yeah how has thinking about some of these ideas in this deeper way now changed your perspective? Can you point to anything that's kind of shifted in your sense of what AIs could be like after working on this project? When when you think of AI, you imagine something abstract that's out there that will probably not get to where you are right now, but sort of now working on the project sort of brings like a flow and brings it closer um, and more real to my situation right now and to where we are right now as a, as a planet, sort of making it not an abstract thing that is just there and for other people that speak about, but also something that um, I see and I can be a part of and I can actually find literature that's about different sorts of tools that are coming up and different sorts of ideals and ideas that are coming up around it as well. It's so cool to hear. Yeah, one of our hopes with this whole project is kind of having that impact on all the people who will now see your world and just making them really think more concretely about what some of these abstract seeming advances might mean for their lives and their relationships with people and their experiences in the world. The process of world building has great potential to make a positive future feel more attainable. This can be incredibly powerful, whether you're a creative person looking to produce rich works of fiction, or have a more technical focus and are looking to reach policymakers or the public. I asked Tracy and Conrad what kind of impact they hoped their work would have on the world. I'd like to hear a little bit about what your hopes for the impact of your world are most broadly. I'd like to see a world where um, I think this process has already started. we can see kind of an epistemological challenge with institutions and authorities during COVID where experts, you had half a population all of a sudden discredit them for political reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, I do not want to reject that fully. The world I hope we can create is a world that what matters most is the most compelling explanation about some sort of phenomenon and not about who shares that explanation. This is a world where arguments cannot be made with one-line tweets, but it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a world where nuance is demanded in discourse, in everyday lives. It's a place where everyone knows that there's no such thing as certainty. And so there's always this openness to be wrong. There's always this openness to accept we are fallible. Um, and yet we also still believe that one can be getting closer to the truth. Yeah, it's so cool to hear, you know, harkening back to what Tracy was saying with how ChatGPT-like systems are forcing people to think more about where their information comes from and its quality. Like these technologies are already kind of pushing us towards thinking more about epistemology and how, how knowledge is created and, and validated and what knowledge even is. So there's already kind of that link happening in our world. And Tracy, what do you hope people come away from this world thinking about? I'm thinking more of living a world full of in- paying more attention to your intention 
and for it to be an intention that comes from a place of goodness and not malice where I'm doing something not just for my good, but for all of us as a whole. So if, if we're working together, we're working towards a common, I'd say a common good of um, a holistic and more welcoming sort of society. As Conrad mentioned, of course, where discourse is allowed, um, you're allowed to have your own opinion, but still that doesn't hinder us from working together. Um, not a scenario where I am fighting you for the sake of me having my way, but agreeing on a common goal where we can all live and agree together in harmony. Yeah. So earlier you were mentioning some media that kind of shaped the way you were thinking about technologies in the future is mostly kind of like Western media, like Star Trek, Star Wars kind of stuff. Do you have any thoughts about like what it would do for us to have more perspectives from other parts of the world joining the conversation about the future in, in a bigger way? Yeah. Um, there's, there's power in seeing something expressed by someone who looks like you. So in this way that if you see more characters explaining certain thoughts, like let's say if I saw more women ex explaining or more women of color, um, African women explaining some of these thoughts to be, you know, it, would, it wouldn't seem very abstract. It wouldn't seem up in the sky. It would seem something that's closer to me, something that... Um, would happen in my lifetime or in my future, but would happen also in Africa, in the Kenyan setting. So there's power in seeing media and listening to media that sounds familiar. And uh, th that's, that's been my belief through a lot of the work I'm doing and also still continuing with it. So even for my past younger self, it wouldn't seem like a very foreign thing if I saw more um, expressions of this of people who look like me yeah well thank you both so much for for all of your time and for putting all of the thought and love that you put into this world to share with us i uh, really appreciate this conversation thank you for engaging with us and letting us share our thoughts <laughs> yeah um, definitely you know, pretty appreciate it um, yeah thank you for having us i've had fun yeah this is a lot of fun Our guests today were Tracy Shundu and Conrad Whitaker. You can learn more about Tracy's company, Funky Science, at funkyscience.co.ke. That's funkyscience.co.ke. You can see some of Conrad's writings at conradwhitaker.substack.com. And their third teammate, Dexter Findlay, has a trilogy of science fiction novels called the Unmarked series, which is available on Amazon. He also has a portfolio page at dexterstacy.netlify.app. If this podcast has got you thinking about the future, you can find out more about this world and explore the ideas contained in the other worlds at www.worldbuild.ai. We want to hear your thoughts. Are these worlds you'd want to live in? If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to help more people discover and discuss these ideas, you can give us a rating or leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. We read all the comments and appreciate every rating. This podcast is produced and edited by Worldview Studio and the Future of Life Institute. FLI is a nonprofit that works to reduce large-scale risks from transformative technologies and promote the development and use of these technologies to benefit all life on Earth. We run educational outreach and grants programs and advocate for better policymaking in the United Nations, U.S. government, and European Union institutions. If you're a storyteller working on films or other creative projects about the future, 
We can also help you understand the science and storytelling potential of transformative technologies. If you'd like to get in touch with us or any of the teams featured on the podcast to collaborate, you can email worldbuild at futureoflife.org. A reminder, this podcast explores the ideas created as part of FLI's world building contest. And our hope is that this series sparks discussion about the kinds of futures we all want. The ideas we discuss here are not to be taken as FLI positions. You can find more about our work at www.futureoflife.org or subscribe to our newsletter to get updates on all our projects. Thanks for listening to Imagine a World. Stay tuned to explore more positive futures. Thank you.